Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, history friend. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. The 50th episode, in fact. Because this is the 50th episode, I wanted to remind you for the 50th time that When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon. That's right, we are, and it is the best way to monetarily support us. But maybe you don't want to throw your money in my direction and hope that I catch it. If that's the case, go and follow us on Twitter instead. It's a great way to keep up with When Diplomacy Fails' latest exploits. And if you tag me in something or comment on something or 
you know, do all those Twittery like things, then I will get in touch with you very quickly. I'm always on Twitter, it seems these days, so it's probably the best way to get in touch with me, even though back in the day I once said that I'd never go near the thing. So make sure, in fact you can do it right now, go on to the Twitter app or twitter.com or whatever it is and just go and search for at WDF podcast and there we will be. If Twitter is not your thing then you know the drill by now, simply tell somebody about us. If you're listening to us on public transport right now, why not strike up a really awkward conversation? If you're going for a run, take those earphones out and stop and talk to the first person you see. If you are walking your dog, ironing or anything else, do it as well. Just find the best way to spread the word about this podcast. And of course, be fit. By the way, be fit in case you weren't aware. That's not me telling you to exercise and eat healthily. That's me saying that the best ways to support, get in contact with and inquire about this podcast is to remember be fit. An acronym wherein each letter stands for a way to support. B is for the blog, the vassal state. E is for email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. F is for Facebook, the Facebook page and Facebook group. Go and search them there. I is for iTunes. You must review us. You must rate us and you must subscribe. Unless, of course, you're not on iTunes and you go through Spotify or whatever it is instead. In which case, just say nice things about us on the internet or on Reddit, etc. instead. T, as we said, is for tell someone. So let's be fit. But really, if you even just do one little part of that, if you even tell someone or tell several someones today, then that would be swell. This podcast exists and it thrives because of the support you guys give it. And it doesn't have to be monetary support, but of course, monetary support is helping me to do this as my job. So, yeah, you're doing real well with the monetary support, but I could always use more exposure. So if you'd like to take some time out of your day to write a review, like us on Facebook, send me an encouraging message, or retweet something we do on Twitter, then I would super, super appreciate that. And hey, doing something free makes it all the better. Alrighty, guys, now let's get into episode... 50. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 50. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 50. Because it's episode 50, I shortened that introduction just a wee bit so that you won't all go insane. I think we've had enough of hearing that poor guy saying that we're here because we're here, but it sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? Anyway, 50 is a nice round number for us, but as usual, there's nothing particularly satisfying about what we've got in store for you today. And that's not because it's a boring episode or because I'm a gross podcast host. It's because we're here to tackle one of the most controversial issues in the 20th century, and perhaps, depending on whom you ask, all of history, full stop. Reparations. The very mention of the term makes people feel both uneasy, but also satisfied. Uneasy because, what if we ask too much and ruin the peace? But satisfied because, well, we did win the war, so we should be entitled to feel like it, shouldn't we? It was a very tricky question, but it boils down to two major issues above all. First, what constituted reparations? What way should Germany have to pay, and what should she have to pay for? Civilian deaths, destruction of farms, indirect famines that her soldiers caused, loss of industrial revenue from the victimised states, loss of livestock, destruction of merchant marine. The list was long and very contentious. Second, and in line with this, was the question of how much Germany should pay. 
Now these two issues of what reparations actually meant and how much you wanted were cause for immense division among the Allies, with the British and Americans in particular finding it especially difficult to get on. It wasn't the case, as is often presented, of the French demanding everything from Germany that wasn't nailed down, and the good old Anglo-Americans moderating Clemenceau's demands. Thanks to Lloyd George's election promises and the impressions he had built up, the British felt compelled to demand higher returns than they knew deep down were truly sustainable. Until they fell into line, it was going to be a rocky road towards quantifying what was either morally right or feasible to demand from the vanquished foes. In this episode, rather than examine the minutes of late March and comb for mention of reparations, what we're going to do instead is draw from the secondary literature a bit more. Historians like Margaret Macmillan have written whole chapters on the issue of reparations, as have other historians who penned articles in the last few years, so we're going to make use of these individuals rather than engage in a day-by-day account of reparations developing since it was first alluded to in the opening stages of the conference, and before then during the armistice negotiations. I'm telling you this to assuage whatever fears you might have about this episode being something of a long, hard slog. If reparations aren't your thing, then don't worry. I certainly don't plan on investigating detailed economic terms or measuring currency rates. Nothing like that, history friends. Instead, we will be focusing on the issue being passed around among the Allies, what was at stake, and how it impacted inter-Allied diplomacy, as well as, of course, what they actually decided upon in the end. This episode here, and the episode that comes immediately after it, are by no means the final word on reparations. There will be another episode on reparations coming out in late April, and in fact I am researching and writing it right now, so reparations are very much in my head. But it takes a while to get through all these issues and answer all these questions, and even when we're at the end of the process, I'm sure there'll be other things still to uncover. But in any case, we're going to give a good stab at it today, so if you're ready to begin this examination, I'd like to say welcome to the 50th episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project, as we analyse the Big Three's deliberations on reparations. In 1929, writing in the Journal of Modern History, the historian Robert Binkley made a judgment which in hindsight appears to us to be painfully premature and naive. In his article, entitled Ten Years of Peace Conference History, Binkley criticised as simplistic those accounts which depicted the conference as a struggle between heroes and villains. It was a decade since the Germans had first signed on the dotted line, but Binkley was worried that accounts of what had taken place at Paris ten years before were still too partisan and biased. Yet, he took solace from the idea that, with time, the moralist tinge would fade from the historiography of the peace settlement, and a more sophisticated understanding of the period would take shape. It had only been a decade since the Treaty of Versailles was signed, after all. Give it a few years, maybe a few decades, and matters would surely become more rational, and analyses or impressions less emotive. However, 50 years after Robert Binkley had written these judgments, in 1979, the historian Mark Trachtenberg was forced to acknowledge that, in the original picture which Binkley condemned, remains intact. The conference is still almost universally portrayed as a struggle between forces of light and forces of darkness. A century after the Treaty of Versailles was created, it's difficult even now to avoid turning this narrative into the story which the conventional or reductionist version of history normally gives us. 
The conventional picture of Versailles is that it was a bad and unjust settlement forced upon people who didn't deserve it by people who were too short-sighted, greedy and selfish to realise the danger. In terms of national policies, the struggle is usually represented as a conflict between America, moderate and conciliatory, and France, anxious for a crushing Carthaginian-type peace which would sow Germany's fields with salt. In the standard accounts of the peace conference, the interpretation of the reparations issue plays a key role. A harsh, even vengeful France is commonly portrayed as the driving force behind the demand for reparation. The French government, it is frequently assumed, sought to use reparation as a means of crippling Germany economically and to rebuild its own economy, and the Americans wanted to maintain a hands-off approach, but also see their own debts repaid by the Europeans. Woodrow Wilson wanted Germany to be punished but not destroyed, while Lloyd George, according to Mark Trachtenberg, was in a position where his heart was with the Americans, but he was forced by political conditions at home to press for a harsher settlement than he himself would have liked. This, of course, led to the situation we are now so familiar with, the Treaty of Versailles being dictated to the Germans, a broken Woodrow Wilson unable to block its harshest tenets, the British limply following behind, having already gotten what they wanted. Is this impression true, though? Well, if you went into this project back in November with this view, it is likely that it has been challenged by now, and you've realised that matters were not so simple as the mean and nasty French versus the reasonable Americans. This draws out one question which it is important to mention. If we know that the simplistic picture of the conference, and subsequently of reparations, was untrue or at least open to debate, then why is it the case that the conventional version of Versailles remains so skewed? Again, Mark Trachtenberg weighs in on the debate with an answer I'm sure we can relate to, that is, examining precisely what went down a century ago and recovering those exact details and statistics is not always the most exciting task. Trachtenberg wrote, There is only one way to prove these things, and that is through the close analysis of figures. It is regrettable that this is the case, because it is hard to sustain interest in a detailed analysis of this sort. Nevertheless, in the past, a large part of the failure of historiography to understand reparation was due to an inability or an unwillingness to examine the side of the issue with even minimal skill. Now, as we said in the beginning of this episode, we are not here to delve into these precise figures, but that doesn't mean I won't be making use of them myself to get a handle of things. Trachtenberg's point also does not mean that there were no differences between the Allies. In other words, just because the notion of a good or bad ally at the conference is flawed doesn't mean that everyone acted in tandem with one another or that all of them had savoury motives. Some genuinely did wish to punish the Germans out of a sense of right and wrong, but also the other central powers as well were to be punished. Some were desperate to repair their nation and recoup their losses by stripping Germany of her assets. Others were adamant that by keeping Germany low and economically weak, another war would be impossible. It was inevitable that the three major Allied powers would be entering Paris with different aims. They all came from very different circumstances, after all, and the war had impacted them in very different ways. After serving as the nerve centre of the Western Front for more than four years, the French and the Belgians had suffered terrible damage, and they needed to find ways of repairing the thousands of farms and factories which had been demolished or ruined. The British had suffered less damage, but they had also spent the most out of all of the Allies in winning the war. Like the French, 
the British were eager to get the balance of these sums made up. Few truly expected all of their expenses to be paid, since the nature of war was that it caused loss and a reduction in power, particularly when it was on the scale experienced between 1914-18. to This was also true of history. Britain did not glide through the Napoleonic Wars safe from strife. It was only in the aftermath of that conflict that Britain's supremacy was built upon during peacetime. Everyone was eager for another one of these productive peacetimes in 1919, though, of course, one which would give all an opportunity to recover, but with the advent of the League of Nations, this peacetime promised to be more fruitful and ideal than any of its predecessors. The United States' arrival on the scene meant that the old Eurocentric dynamic was set to change as well, particularly as the United States had lent money to the Allies, and now they wanted their money back. This was perhaps the only practical, genuinely economic aim of Wilson's. Everything else was couched in an ideology similar to his political ends. It is a forgotten fact of the oft-parted version of the Treaty of Versailles that the Germans did not have to agree to a specific figure for damages. Instead, the Germans were made to sign what was referred to bitterly as the blank check, which stipulated that a sum would be arrived at, but only after a reparations commission gathered and delivered its findings within two years. The German representatives, therefore, did not know how much they would have to pay when they signed the Treaty of Versailles in summer 1919. All they knew was that they would have to pay something eventually, and that the number would probably not be a small one, judging by the atmosphere of the conference. The German delegation, which arrived in Paris in late April 1919, would have been well aware of another painful reality in the Allied camp, that many of the Allies wanted German reparations and for money to flow forth from the central powers as punishment, not necessarily because they wanted to avenge themselves upon the vanquished, but because they desperately needed this money themselves. They didn't just need these monies to justify the horrific losses which had been incurred, they also needed them because the supposed triumph against the central powers had brought few tangible benefits, but a whole heap of debt. France has often been lampooned in the narrative of reparations because it's generally been fashionable to blame Clemenceau for pulling money out of Germany or for aiming at detaching portions of Germany to the benefit of France. What is talked about much less, though, is the dire impact upon French finance that the Russian collapse and withdrawal from the war had upon the French economy. Before the Great War erupted, France sank more foreign investment than any other nation into Russia, and she had the greatest reasons for doing so. A strong Russia meant a strong Entente, which meant a strong guard against Germany, which meant a strong France. The exit of Russia from the war in 1917 was dangerous, for sure, but it was also problematic, because now that the red flag flew over Moscow, and Lenin's crowd were proclaiming a brand new beginning, the fate of those considerable French monetary investments were in serious doubt. While it had been in her interest, France had not poured money into Russia out of the kindness of her heart. These had been loans, and they were expected to be returned in time. With the new regime in charge, though, there was severe anxiety whether France would ever see that money again, and there was little she could do about it to make the Russians pay up. By spring 1919, France owed the British $3 billion and the Americans $4 billion. Again, we have to emphasise, lending France this money had been sensible in the context of Allied cooperation, but there wasn't any concept of Allied charity at this point. This money would have to be paid back. French national debt amounted to $4 billion after the war, 
and this combined figure of $7 billion due to her allies placed French economic stability in doubt. If only, countless French statesmen fumed, the blasted Russians had actually paid Paris back. There would not be such financial uncertainty and anxiety at a time like this. Unfortunately for the French, though, the days of serving as Europe's financial epicentre had long since passed. Not even London had escaped the Great War unscathed, although the city remained the beating heart of European and world commerce. Britain did, after all, owe debts of its own to the Americans, to the tune of $4.7 billion. It should be emphasised that the Americans had lent more money to other Allied powers in addition to this nearly $8 billion sum. Romanians, Belgians, Italians and even Russians had benefited from American dollars, which would now have to be returned. As a further example of history repeating itself, 1919 echoed 1945 in that America was in a position to cause a lot of pain for the Allied States if she began demanding her money back. Yet the picture becomes further complicated in that, before the war entered crisis mode, both the British and the French had themselves lent large sums to the Romanians, Italians, Belgians, etc. as well. A kaleidoscope of debt and IOUs were thus floating around Europe in spring 1919, and the very topic of paying these debts was felt to be immensely sensitive. The Anglo-French imagined that they would be able to pay back the Americans when the smaller fry started to pay them back, but the question of when the unsteady Italian, Romanian or Belgian regimes would be able to manage that feat was very much up in the air. Considering this lockjam of debt, solutions were imagined to solve the economic crisis and send European states back on the road to recovery. One of these solutions proposed was one which would in fact be adopted a generation later with the European Recovery Programme or Marshall Plan, but in spring 1919, ideas about substantial American investment into Europe or of tethering American economic interests to the continent, well, these were controversial ideas, for sure. An idealist in moral and political theatres, these ideas were too much even for Woodrow Wilson, who exclaimed to one of his financial experts, I realise the efforts that are being made to tie us to the shaky financial structure of Europe, and I'm counting upon your assistance to defeat these efforts. Why not tally up the net cost of the war and simply give America a large share, rather than engage in these tedious debt repayments? We're all allies, not after the same things in the world? Clemenceau thought so, and he wanted desperately to maintain the Triple Alliance Agreement between British, French and American political and economic policymakers which had won the war. David Lloyd George, for his part, imagined that by cancelling all inter-allied war debt, the world would actually be able to move forward. This was undoubtedly the most radical solution, especially when you think about it for a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, who must have known how impolitique it would have been for Woodrow Wilson to accept, considering how much money everyone owed the Americans, but it could, potentially, have worked wonders. There is no doubt, Lloyd George confessed to a cabinet member, that it would be better to fix a sum if we could agree on the figure. The difficulty is, first of all, to ascertain it. The next is to secure agreement among the Allies as to the amount, and, in the third place, to secure an arrangement as to the proportions in which it is to be distributed. If you have any plan that will meet these three difficulties, you will have solved the most baffling problem in the peace treaty. Who on earth could devise such a plan, though? 
who could navigate the complex terminology and issues at stake to come up with a solution that was reasonable, affordable, fair and satisfying all at once to everyone. Well, of course, no such brain existed that could have produced this miracle, since it simply wasn't possible in spring 1919. That is a theme we must get used to throughout this project, depressing though it might be. However, one very well thought of Brit who was determined to give it a try was a graduate of Cambridge, and the man probably more responsible than any other figure for shaping your opinions on the Paris Peace Conference and Treaty of Versailles, even if you may never have heard of him. This man's name was John Maynard Keynes, and he was determined to put his own stamp on the question of reparations, as well as so many other economic elements of the peace treaty which the Allies were constructing. Keynes' longevity as an economist was buoyed by his underrated expertise as an international relations scholar, and his consistent alteration of his personal political and economic inclinations. Spoiler warning, Keynes left Paris utterly disgusted with how affairs had been handled, particularly the economic aspects which he had been charged with advising about. In Keynes's view, the Allies scuttled the peace because they failed to understand or pay due attention to economic matters, and in his manifesto released shortly after his return home, the man certainly pulled no punches. And the economic consequences of the peace was a manifesto in the truest sense of the term. It was tinged with politically motivated reprimands, with acidic character judgments, and most infamously, cutting perspectives of what the Allies did wrong with the peace. He had strong words for each of the big three. Woodrow Wilson was caught up in the emotions of a shattered Europe, and in spite of his commitments, allowed himself to be drugged by their atmosphere, to discuss on the basis of their plans and their data, and to be led along their paths. To John Maynard Keynes, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, was a mysterious war chief of sorts who had emerged from the mists of the Welsh mountains, and in a piece that he actually had removed from the end manuscript for his Consequences of the Peace book, Keynes opined, One catches in his company that flavour of a final purposelessness, an inner irresponsibility, existence outside or away from our Saxon good and evil, mixed with cunning, remorselessness, love of power, that lend fascination, enthrallment and terror to the fair-seeming magicians of North European folklore. Clemenceau was especially prone to Keynes's lampooning. The bitter, dried-up old Frenchman focused single-mindedly on French interests and security to the detriment of all other interests, and his grasping policy in the peace conference cost the world its final peace. Keynes evidently loathed France by the end of his experience, likely because the French delegates were the most difficult in their opposition to his point of view. Interestingly, when he wasn't fighting with his French counterparts about British loans or relieving German suffering, he was commenting on seeing more eye-to-eye with the German delegates than he expected. The straightforward and open impression which the shattered Germans gave Keynes only served to convince him further that the Allies were making a grave mistake by allowing their plans for the future to be coloured by reports coming in now. In Paris, Keynes complained, where those connected with the Supreme Economic Council received almost hourly the reports of the misery, disorder and decaying organisation of all Central and Eastern Europe, allied and enemy alike, and learned from the lips of the financial representatives of Germany and Austria unanswerable evidence of the terrible exhaustion of their countries, an occasional visit to the hot, dry room in the President's house where the four fulfilled their destinies in empty and arid intrigue, only added to the sense of nightmare. 
It was an interesting comparison, the storm in Europe and the desert of good ideas in Paris, but was it true? Keynes certainly seemed to imagine that the Allies were going about it all wrong. They had focused too extensively on the political and military aspects of the peace, where the economic matters should have been upheld above all. Never mind drawing lines on a map and creating new states, these Allies should be creating free trade areas, cancelling their debts to one another, and considering their future relationship with the defeated central powers, rather than considering what they could squeeze out of them now. Keynes was most bitter about how reparations were handled, which is why his view is so relevant to us today, and his perspectives on what should have been done at Versailles vis-a-vis reparations informed for generations how historians and amateurs alike viewed the decisions taken there. At maximum, Keynes believed, the Germans should be made to pay $10 billion, whereas the final amount agreed in 1921 equaled 132 billion gold mark, which was, according to exchange rate estimates of that time, roughly three times that $10 billion figure. Keynes stuck resolutely to his figure, in the belief that sending Germany a larger check would compromise her security and integrity, and likely foster revolutionary conditions which would endanger European recovery overall. As far as recovery went, Keynes imagined that by raising money, repairing war damage, selling reparations, bonds in the defeated nations, and maintaining close links politically, the world would recover. Integral to his plan was the participation of the United States, whose financial clout would be vital if Europe was to proceed towards the path of recovery. Keynes perhaps did not imagine that within a few years, the United States would repudiate its commitments to Europe and embrace a new isolationist policy, but Keynes could hardly have blamed Clemenceau for that. It is interesting that one of the earliest challenges to Keynes's manifesto came from Etienne Mantou, the son of Clemenceau's interpreter Paul Mantou, who was himself famed for translating with such feeling and emotion that it sometimes seemed to those observers that Paul Mantou was making the arguments and debates personally rather than merely regurgitating them for the Allied delegates. Paul's son Etienne was less renowned, largely because he died just after his 32nd birthday, but first he completed his defining work, The Carthaginian Peace, or The Economic Consequences of Mr. Keynes, which was released the year after his death in 1946. Within the book, Manteau challenged Keynes' assertions, but he also provided a good introduction to the book's impact when he wrote, The economic consequences of the peace was read all over the world. By 1924, the book had been translated into 11 languages, and its various editions had run into some 140,000 copies. Perhaps only Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France may be said to have wielded over the destinies of Europe such a widespread and immediate influence. Its success, to be sure, was far from uniform. Naturally enough, enthusiasm was loudest in Germany. It was received in France with stupefied indignation. In Great Britain and the United States, reactions were mixed. Comfort for Germany, wrote the London Times. Several of the American delegates to the conference protested sharply against what they called the book's misrepresentations and challenged its general conclusions. Most of the hostile reviewers reprimanded the author for his lack of political sense. Some said the book was academic, others that it was reckless, but few attempted to criticise in any detail Mr Keynes's findings on the economic side of the peace treaty, and such opponents as dared to affront his indefatigable pugnacity were soon overwhelmed by the mounting tide of public opinion. 
If anyone was in a position to comment on the frustration of the Supreme Economic Council and the pain in arriving at sensible decisions in the economic categories, then surely it was Keynes who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer's principal representative from January to June 1919. During this time, Keynes sat on the Supreme Economic Council. Remember, the Supreme Economic Council was that body tasked with crafting a reasonable and sustainable set of economic terms to insert into the final peace treaty, including, among these terms, the thorny issue of reparations. When the Council of Ten decided to create the Supreme Economic Council in February to delegate some responsibility and take a burden off their shoulders, they also empowered that body with the ability to create clauses for the final treaty without having to constantly confer with the Council of Ten. This, of course, gave Keynes considerable power to make policy happen and to create the kind of clauses he wanted, yet he found that his efforts were suffocated by the opposition presented by the French above all, which explains why he found time in his Consequences book to lambast the French so extensively. What policies can we broadly say that Keynes advocated then? Well, very broadly, Keynes was eager in arguing that relief had to be provided to prevent starvation. Keynes believed that war debts should, if possible, be forgiven. More notably, as we said, Keynes regularly expressed the viewpoint that reparations should be kept within Germany's moral obligation and capacity to pay. Keynes was perceptive enough to note two additional things. First, that the European economy was dependent on Germany, and second, that this economy would not resume working if private enterprise was left unaided. It would be down to national governments to cooperate in this regard, and to shell out with guarantees of credit, especially in the American case, where necessary. In terms of economic theory, it would be fair to say that while Keynes wished there to be free trade and private enterprise, he accepted that a laissez-faire, free-trade, free-market would not be enough to resurrect European economic health. In the course of taking this position, Keynes was placed in a role which saw him fighting hard against those whose vision of the peace was more punitive than his own, especially those who saw continuing conflict with Germany as unavoidable and inevitable and the idea of harmony completely impossible. Yet we shouldn't imagine that Keynes fought his battle alone. For Keynes, the most important ingredient in a post-war repairing of Europe involved the most important international relationship at Paris. This, as we said, was the Anglo-American. Keynes was absolutely convinced that the Americans could forgive war debts without too extensive an economic hit, that American banks could lend to restart the European economy, and that an Anglo-American partnership offered the greatest hope of moderating the reparation demands. Keynes was of the view that, generally, there were no necessary conflicts of policy between the Americans and British, and throughout his tenure on the Supreme Economic Council, he strove to ensure Anglo-American cooperation in Paris. Keynes, again, was not alone in this noble quest. He worked closely with the United States' financial and economic experts, some of whom believed that US leadership on such issues as relief was essential. The problem for these officials was that their impressions of the world were grounded in the economic and the rational. If it was good for the world, then it must and would be done. Yet this did not take into account the very palpable political and emotional issues which coloured relations between the Allies and between political parties in the Allied states. Keynes was somewhat naive in looking for a particular person or country to blame in this failing. He was almost too rational for his own good and failed to consider the unfortunate fact, for him at least it seemed unfortunate, 
that the world was not ruled by unelected economists, but by politicians subject to the whims and emotions of electorates. Electorates who, by and large, expected great and shiny things from them at Paris. In the end, Keynes couldn't reconcile these contrasting worlds, and he resigned from the Treasury in disgust in June 1919, before the Treaty of Versailles was actually made official. Shortly afterwards, he carved out a niche for himself in the political wilderness as an economist who, if the Allies had only listened to him, would have fixed what had been broken. Keynes was not alone in feeling that the construction of the Treaty of Versailles was an utterly fruitless, maddening experience, and he would have been in good company with the likes of William Bullitt, that American delegate who had been sent to Russia, only to be spurned on his return. Bullitt's bitterness is similar to Keynes's in this respect. Both men felt like their expert opinions had not been listened to. The major difference is, of course, that Bullitt vanished into obscurity, whereas Keynes made use of this considerable influence and connections to push out the defining peace on the Treaty of Versailles. Keynes's book is probably more responsible than any other work for the perception that the Treaty of Versailles, and in particular its financial clauses, were fundamentally unfair. And when I state my intentions to challenge these ideas and get to the bottom of what really happened, what I really mean is that I want to wade through this shadow of ignominy that Keynes has cast over the whole thing. That this is my mission should not leave you thinking that Keynes had it totally wrong though. It is instead the case that, in my opinion, and in the view of many others, he did not have it totally right, and his uncompromising conclusions went too far without considering the grey areas that European statesmen traditionally danced within. Maybe a bill of only $10 billion would have prevented the souring of relations between the victors and the vanquished, but maybe the very existence of a bill, full stop, would always have done this. Maybe the Allies were never in a position to satisfactorily conclude the Great War, and move human progress forward because the human condition and society as a whole had not yet evolved to that point. Maybe the fault was with the German people for failing to accept culpability and focusing more intently on peace rather than rolling the dice again. And maybe, on the other hand, none of this mattered all because the Wall Street crash threw everything into a flux a decade later either way. Whatever the truth, and we will return to these questions later, of course, I would argue that because of Keynes, we're forced to debate against a ghost, which states that the Treaty of Versailles must be this way or that way, when we know that most things in history are not so clear-cut. Maybe if there had been 5,000 John Maynard Keyneses instead of just one at the peace conference, we would be talking about how rational economic policy won out. But the reality was that Europe had just been through an unprecedented trauma, and if we fail to grasp that, and I mean to really grasp that, then it becomes far too easy to forget the context, as Keynes seemed to do. He could never understand the crippling anxiety which infected French statesmen in the aftermath, nor was he plugged into the mess of issues and committees which all had their own quests to achieve and chestnuts to bring home. Instead, the different perspectives which these men offered made him angry and caused him to distance himself further from them as he retreated into his high tower and became even more disconnected from the realities of 1919. Keynes's ideas, taken by themselves, were sensible and well-intentioned, but they were a generation too early in an era completely unprepared for such a detached way of viewing their future or their past. Instead of Keynes's figure of $10 billion, the numbers floated around by the time Woodrow Wilson left home on Valentine's Day 1919 would have made him wince. 
Britain was asking for $120 billion. The French asking for $220 billion. And the Americans were recommending a sum no larger than $22 billion, which was still more than twice the size of his figure. But even this was a controversial move among the Allies, all of whom, excepting America, wished to leave an exact figure out of the final treaty. What the British, French and Italians wanted was for Germany to sign on the dotted line without stating an exact figure, while the United States wanted the inverse, believing that an actual stated sum would help Europeans structure their plans for the future. The disagreement played out into the final treaty, where the Germans were in fact made to sign this blank cheque, and the Reparations Commission returned their verdict of roughly $30 billion in 1921. As one British cabinet minister explained, this policy of holding off on stating the actual desired sum made logical sense. He said, If too low a figure were given, Germany would pay out cheerfully and the Allies would get too little, while on the other hand, if too high a figure were given, she would throw up the sponge and the Allies would get nothing. This obsession with getting as much as possible even coloured the Allied decision not to evaluate Germany's capacity to pay. This would be done after the treaty was concluded and would be part of the Reparations Commission's remit. The reason for that was because Allied leaders suspected that the calculations would reveal that Germany was only capable of paying a much smaller sum than they had promised to their electorates. This was especially problematic for David Lloyd George, who had promised so much during the general election of December 1918, and received a political triumph as a result. It was just as politically sensitive for the French and Italians, but for the French case, the question was tied up with matters of strategy and security for the future. And it wasn't merely Germany's ability to pay, but also estimating how much damage had been done to the Allies that posed a monumental challenge. Skeptics in the Allied camp accused the other of inflating their figures, since reparations would be shared among the Allies, and the thought process went that the most damaged Allied power would receive the most reparations. Interestingly, in the beginning, Wilson insisted that reparations would serve only as restitution for damage done by unlawful acts of war. There would be no severe reparations or indemnity that Germany would have to pay. If this sounds surprising, considering what subsequently actually happened, then bear in mind that Wilson's 14 points had stated that there would be no annexations, no contributions, and no punitive damages. It is fair to say that Germany had signed the armistice based on this understanding that there would be no annexations, contributions, or punitive damages, and this helps to explain the later fury which her statesmen expressed. Had the Germans simply been lied to then? Not so, said the British. These weren't indemnities, they were reparations. In fact, they were justice. Desperately, Lloyd George set to blur the lines between indemnities and reparations, but all the President saw was a large bill that continued to rise. In the early months of the peace conference, before the President gave in to Lloyd George's demands, Wilson continued to oppose the idea of presenting Germany with any bill, whereas Lloyd George optimistically believed that the President would come around eventually. The dispute revealed some resentment which the British felt towards France. If reparations were not settled satisfactorily, then the French would get the lion's share, Britain would be compensated only for its shipping losses, and the French would let this money slip through the cracks with its inefficient financial mismanagement. Lloyd George speculated unkindly that the French seemed in no hurry to pay Britain back its billions of dollars, remarking that, France is going bankrupt as a nation, but the French were growing wealthy as individuals. In his campaign to persuade Wilson to cave, Lloyd George was aided by Jan Smuts, who proposed the approach which was 
later to become infamous. Within the armistice, Smuts said, the principle of German responsibility for damage done to Europe's civilian population had been accepted. Thus, Germany would be responsible not just for compensating the Allies, but she would also be responsible, in the future, for the pensions of widows and the care for the orphans which the German war had created. Due to its moralistic tone, Smuts's approach had more of an appeal to Woodrow Wilson, even if the end result was to double the reparations bill. When Wilson was told that the argument that Smuts had put forward was illogical and that it was effectively the same thing to wrest money from Germany, no matter that money's destination, Wilson replied, Logic, logic, I don't give a damn for logic, I'm going to include pensions. This was a highly inconsistent response from the American president. Did he not realise that whatever the money was meant for, it was still an inflated bill which the Germans had been told to not expect and which he had been against only a short time before? Indeed, it seems that Wilson was inconsistent in his attitude towards reparations and did not resist the Prime Minister as much as he should have. If inconsistency afflicted the American leader, though, then as we'll see in the next episode, it absolutely characterised the British Prime Minister. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.